Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Economist. From London, this is The Economist. My name is Fiametta Rocco, and I'm the books and arts editor at The Economist. From time to time, our staff take short breaks from the paper's weekly publishing demands to write books of their own. Today we have not one, but two authors. Nicholas Pelham, our Middle East correspondent, whose new book is called Holy Lands, Reviving Pluralism in the Middle East, and Anne Rowe, our obituaries editor, with her new book, Six Facets of Light. Nick, let's start with you. You've been the Middle East correspondent for The Economist for some time now. You cover the region's politics, its history, its culture. Your new book is called Holy Lands. How did that come about? I've spent a very long time in the Middle East writing rather depressing stories about violence from one day to the next, from one week to the next. The, the general conception has been that this is a region in a state of decline. And yet somehow I felt that the pieces that I've written and that my colleagues are writing didn't reflect a reality in which you know, somehow people were, were still getting on and were finding meaning in their lives. And that a lot of the colour that people bemoaned that they'd lost in the region somehow st- still survived in their personal lives, in their memories, in their stories of family histories. And I suppose it was that past that I wanted to capture. And how come this region, which had been an epitome of, of, of tolerance was now seen worldwide as being a paradigm of intolerance, of sectarianism, of, of atavistic values. And I wanted to try and explain the difference between that very rich, colourful past and the kind of rather butchered reality in which many can see the region as living in today. I mean, the book is surprisingly optimistic, not just in the story that you describe about the past, but about the future of the region. How did you come to that conclusion? I suppose people really do retain many of these these old values that despite the uh, numerous wars and sanctions and um, despotism that characterises the region in many ways today, people haven't quite lost that sense that they come from a, a much better place. And you can go to parts of the Middle East and just see a re-emergence already of a flowering of some of that lost past. You know, even in Baghdad, there's a strikingly strong civil society which is beginning to, to emerge. There's a youth culture, there are orchestras that play in Baghdad so that they're surprised that you know, they, they never play to such young audiences. There's a sort of fascination of trying to recover a culture that seems to have been denied to people for, for so long. Well, the heart of the book is the system of the Ottoman Empire, the millet system. How did this work? When the sultans and caliphs that, that ruled the region in the past rose to power, they were faced with a, an array of different sects and different peoples. They were ruling empires, and they needed a system for trying to, to manage this kind of vast array of different sects and peoples. And the system that they, they, they coined was called the millet system, which was the millet was the, the religious nation, and they devolved power to that millet so that the, the head of the millet would be the religious leader, the patriarch or the caliph or the chief rabbi. And when they devolved power, these religious leaders ruled as theocracies. They applied religious law, they had their own courts, they had their own means of controlling their population. And in some ways, they were sort of semi-autonomous or even to some extent national entities. But what was critically different from the nation of today was that 
they didn't control territory. They controlled their community, but that community was divorced from from the territory. And they sort of ruled, as, as it were, parallel states so that they didn't have ghettos or confined enclaves. You could travel across the Middle East within your own millet in parallel to, to, to other millets. So there was no national boundary. It was a very different uh, region, much more open region than the one that you have today. I mean, what you're talking about, to use a, a, a modern phrase, really, is shared space. What are some of the practical steps that leaders in the Middle East could take to make their countries more pluralistic, to create this shared space that you talk about in the book? I think to answer that question, you have to look back in time to this era when the millet system held its way and you had these parallel states, sort of shared space, as you said. And what happened with the demise of the Ottoman Empire and the demise of the, the caliphate in the 1920s was that sects were boxed into separate enclaves. You needed a, a passport to get to one, from one part of the region to another, that you belonged to a specific territory, and it actually became quite difficult to travel out of that territory. And it's almost as if today the sect has become the passport, that, that, that your religion matters much more in many ways for, 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 for movement and access than nationality. I suppose to answer the question as to how can places become shared again, you, you can look at other incremental me- measures that rulers can take to facilitate much greater access and, and movement. People are, are boxed within these enclaves. They're, they're, they're trapped by their sect. And it's about how can the sect recover some of that universal space that it had in the past? How can you recreate these parallel states where, where, where religions can travel within territory without yet necessarily losing their, their identity? Many people would argue it's too late to go back to the Ottoman model. I mean, we've seen so many non-Muslim communities driven from their homes, most recently a thriving Jewish community in Iraq, for example, has all but disappeared. The Christian communities in Iraq and Syria have been displaced by war. What makes you think it's possible to return to the way it was during the Ottoman period? There has been this massive displacement of population and people have tended to gravitate um, around sort of concentrations of their own sect. But it actually remains very, very difficult to carve the region up into specific sectarian territories. Actually, a lot of the displacement has only muddled the region e- even further. Jews have moved out of Baghdad and uh, other cities across the region, but they've congregated in an area where, where there are many Muslims and, and Christians and all, all Palestinian living. The Sunni population that has uh, fled Aleppo has often gravitated to the coast, which is a traditional sort of Alawite area. And so actually... Although there has been this huge displacement, it hasn't separated people to the same extent. In, in, in Mosul, you've had a flight of Shia and many Sunnis who are Arab, but they've gone to Kurdish areas. In some ways, kind of this displacement has even kind of created further, further, further mingling. And every attempt that there's been at partition in the region hasn't really delivered that sense of stability, end of conflict that the people who are advocating it um, claimed it would. There's been this attempt for the past 100 years to divide mandatory historic Palestine into a Jewish and Palestinian separate zone, separate states, separate homelands. It hasn't ended the conflict. And I think that actually trying to box sects, religions into specific enclaves when they still harbour this idea of kind of ability to move and roam across the region is not going to resolve the conflict. It may even intensify it. And yet, despite all this, at the end of the book, you are optimistic. So tell us a little bit about some of the places where this is starting to happen. I think surprisingly, it's happen- happening amongst some of the religious leaders who have greater sway than ever in the region. Some of the strongest advocates against sectarianism, ironically, are Shia leaders, the Ayatollahs in Najaf, who are in the process of building an interfaith center. They're inviting 
different religious leaders to come to Najaf in what was traditionally quite a closed sort of holy city reserved only for Shia. And Najaf is, is very different. It's hosting a series of delegations from the Vatican, from um, from other religious faiths. Uh, it's, it's, it's bringing Sunnis to Najaf to meet with the Ayatollahs to teach about Sunnism to Shia seminarians. And there is a sense in which there is an attempt to recreate an era where sects lived alongside one another, not in conflict with one another. They, they maintained their own separate laws, traditions, communities, but they weren't in, in, in conflict because they weren't fighting over space. They were sharing space. And I think that's an idea which still remains amongst many religious leaders in the region and is starting to percolate down to their adherents. Something we can all learn from. Nick, thank you. That was our Middle East correspondent, Nicholas Pelham, talking to me about his new book, Holy Lands, Reviving Pluralism in the Middle East. The book is published in America by Columbia Global Reports. Our obituaries editor, Anne Rowe, is known both among the staff and among readers for her singular life sketches. She writes just one piece a week at the back of The Economist. Over a long career, she's also written a series of groundbreaking biographies of Pontius Pilate, Perkin Warbeck, Shelley, Orpheus. Anne, very good to have you with us. Lovely to be here, Fiumetta. Six Facets of Light is a change of pace, isn't it? What is the book about and why did you come to write it now? Well, the main subject of it is poets and painters trying to track down what light is, trying to grapple with capturing it either in words or in paint. And I think it happened into my head now mostly because... A few years ago, my husband and I bought a flat in Brighton when we were wanting to keep our money away from the evil bankers. And I was suddenly face to face with this extraordinary light of the South Downs and the way it reflects off the sea. And also, a most intriguing thing to me, the way light not only pours down on this landscape, but also appears to be generated out of it, because the underlying stone is chalk, of course, bright white, and so you have these two meetings of light. And I became absolutely intoxicated with this. And at the same time, I came to know much better the paintings of Eric Revilius, who is a local painter, if you like, of East Sussex. He was born in Eastbourne, not far from Brighton. The more I looked at those paintings, the more I realised that he has absolutely captured the way light lies under the landscape as well as coming down on it. Reading it, it feels like a choral work. You've got this light as seen through the eyes of poets and artists. It opens in Sussex, as you say, in Eastbourne, the sunniest town in England, and a lot of the book is set around the South Downs. You mention Revilius, of course, but there are other poets and artists that you write about, not all of them English. Why did you choose the particular poets and artists that you did? First of all, I love your idea that it's a chorus because that is almost how I thought of it in the end. And I almost think of Dante's chorus of souls in heaven that go on singing and singing and actually make up the light themselves. I suppose the people I chose are those I like best. They've been in my mind for a very long time. People like Blake, Dante, Walt Whitman, Thoreau, Gerald Manny Hopkins, Coleridge, too, for many years. They've all been writers I've loved or artists I've loved for various reasons. And I simply began, because I'd begun to think about light, to see how they'd treated it and how they'd written about it. And to my surprise, in a way, they'd thought an awful lot about it and written some very detailed 
ideas for how to catch it. And some of them, such as Hopkins and Blake, had, of course, done it under two forms. They'd been both artists and writers. Well, light is like music or dance. It's one of those incredibly difficult things to capture in words or even with paint. Which one of them did you feel came the closest to actually capturing it? Yes, that's a fairly difficult question. And in the end, I almost decided that Blake had because he has this idea of a line of light and that any line you make is actually a line of light, even though it may appear to be a dark line of graphite, that the actual creative force of light in the world is like a cross-hatching or something of that sort. I was terribly intrigued by that idea. They all catch it in different ways. Newton, the one scientist I write about, pictured light as an eel twitching back and forth, and I must say I found that a lovely image. Well, there's a fair bit of science in the book. Of course, you mentioned Newton. In fact, your science stops with him. Obviously, that was quite a deliberate choice. Why there? It stops there because after that, my own scientific knowledge gets pretty weak and feeble. I find it pretty hard to understand. And of course, light is still quite a mystery to science. I don't mean that we can't describe photons and so forth as Einstein indeed did. Uh, a good century ago. But even Einstein said, you know, any old rogue will tell you he knows what light is, but he's not telling you the truth. It's much more mysterious. And that was something that really drew me to the subject, that in a way, the artists and painters are still level pegging with the scientists to catch it. I liked that idea. Like many of the people you describe, you yourself are some kind of an experimenter. I mean, you're book about Shelley was a biography through the poetry rather than a conventional chronological life. Could you call this a biography of light? Is that what you intended? I did think about that. In fact, when I went on holiday to Italy last year, I took the manuscript with me and I purposely capitalised light all the way through just to see if it would work by making light a character. And then I thought it was rather an artificial thing to do and looked a bit pretentious. But in fact, even if you put light as lowercase, I made sure that it always works as an active subject and you can, in fact, see it, if you like, as a character going all the way through because that was how I was approaching it in the end. I was pursuing it. And I think if you're pursuing anything, you begin to endow it with a character and it almost becomes a human being. Your book has only just come out, and this is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? I mean, writing a book is secretive, it's utterly absorbing. In all the writing and research that you did for this book, what did you find the most intriguing aspect of the subject? I think by far it was this idea that I touched on at the beginning, the idea that light is both without us and within us. And this became stronger and stronger through the book, in a way, through the writings of the people I was dealing with and also through the painting, that there's a light, obviously, far from us, being sent by the sun. But there's also, if you like, an inward sun that is blazing there that certainly writers like Thomas Traherne were extremely aware of, also writers like Thoreau and Dante too, and painters like Fra Angelico who get this wonderful feeling of imminent light in their saints. 
I really did become intrigued by this because the mystics have always felt the light beyond us is actually a paler light than that which is within, which comes in directly from the divine, and that the sun is filtering it more than we are, that we shine brighter than the sun. I found this, I must say, a most wonderful idea. That was Anne Rowe, The Economist's obituaries editor, talking to me about her new book, Six Facets of Light. Six Facets of Light is published in Britain by Jonathan Cape. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 